This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and today we're fortunate to have David Fine. David Fine is the co-founder and CEO of Value Source. David's an entrepreneur, world traveler, and adventurer. At age 16, he was the second youngest person ever to set foot on the South Pole. To put himself through college, David started and ran a sailboat charter business. At the age of 25, he fulfilled a longtime dream by sailing across the Pacific to Tahiti on a 34-foot sailboat. In 1986, after returning from Tahiti, he co-founded ValueSource. For over 30 years, ValueSource has been the leading provider of business valuation software, data, and services. ValueSource has become the leading provider of business valuation software in the world. In 1994, David sold ValueSource to the global publishing company John Wiley & Sons. Later, it became clear that ValueSource needed its independence back in order to continue to prosper, so David repurchased the company. He acquired additional related company and has now positioned ValueSource as a global leader in business valuation software and data. David's mission and focus has always been to cultivate both personal and professional excellence through the art of business. David, it's a pleasure to have you for the first time on the podcast. Thank you very much. You bet. Well, tell us a little bit about your business and who you serve. Well, we started um, 30 years ago, and our focus has been creating a valuation software for professionals. So um, the valuation business is pretty broad. There's everybody from uh, merger and acquisition people that need to do it, uh, people that you need to buy small businesses, and there are um, professionals that need to value businesses. For example, if a company um, issues stock options or if someone passes away and there's a business involved, or if there's a divorce and the couple can't agree on the value of a business, they bring in a professional and we provide the software and data to help them do that. So it's sort of like a CPA would use um, tax software to prepare your taxes. Mm -hmm. They would use our software to prepare a business valuation. So when you first take us back to that time, so you're you're just off, did you sail back as well? No. So flew back. It took (laughs) a little longer to sail there than than fly back. And it really blew my mind because I remember on the plane it took, I think it was a five-hour flight back. And it took us 34 days to cross the ocean. And that, that difference um, always was striking. <laughs> you know, in, 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 in that whole trip, so you've gone across the ocean. And tell us a little bit about maybe, if you'd look back at that trip, one of the enduring messages or learning points that you reckon back to now when you're running your business. Is there something that you draw from that trip? Well, I would say one thing is I, I, I had a, um, a deep, desire and a passion to sail across an ocean. I mean, it was like um, I'd been sailing. I was running a sailboat company. I was doing very short kinds of things around Los Angeles and some island sailing. So I had this dream, right, to um, sail across an ocean. And I remember, I'll I'll never forget when the opportunity came up to do that. And I got the phone call and they said, would you like to join us and sail across the ocean? And that feeling sort of that, that that feeling in your chest where your dream becomes this fear, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, it, it's a little terrifying to think about sailing across. It's, it's the reality is very different than sort of the, you know, romantic vision of being on a boat. So I remember that moment where they called and they asked, and I remember feeling scared, really. I mean, wow, okay, this is the real deal. I'm actually going to set foot on a boat, throw the mooring lines off and not see land for 35 days. So I think, you know, that piece of one, having a dream too, when the scary part comes, say yes, because 
you know, you learn a ton. And it was challenging. I mean, sailing across an ocean is a challenging thing. It took 34 days. And, um, you know, it's not like we ran into any horrendous storms or anything like that. But it's it's um, it's like life, right? You know, they, they, sailing is, you know, 80% sort of tedium, you know, 10% um, absolute joy and ecstasy and 10% terror. And it's sort of like life. So, you know. <laughs> In thinking about, you know, the trip. And so, and it sounds like you have a habit of this because you went to the South Pole at 16 as well. So take us to that particular event, and how did that come to pass? Well, that's kind of a crazy story. Um, when I was about 14, I stumbled into the Sea Cadets, which is like Navy Reserve for um, young guys. And it's the same exact program that an enlisted Navy guy goes through. You take the same courses, you take the same tests, you learn the same kind of things. Um, you go to an abbreviated boot camp in San Diego, and you also spend time um, you know, I, I was spending summers on tugboats in San Diego and Easter vacations um, in Port Wynemia and their missile recovery boats. And I spent time on Aegis missile destroyers at 14, 14 and 15. So to me, I mean, it was so exciting. It was so incredible. I mean, it was like, you know, I was in high school and I'm doing all this incredible stuff. And I was loving it. I mean, it was just an, an incredible experience. And then the Coast Guard opened three billets on the uh, USS Burton Island, which is a 300-foot big red icebreaker that was headed to Antarctica. And as soon as I heard that, I mean, never in my life did I want something so deeply. I mean, it was just, you know, the lights went off. I was excited. And they told me that I couldn't go because I wasn't the right rank and I had to pass too many tests in time. And, you know, they basically said, forget it. And I said, look, you know, let me try. And so they did. And um, I managed to pass all the tests and meet the things. And so I got to apply. And to make a long story short, I got selected as one of the three sea cadets in the United States to go. But by that time, I'd been reading about um, Amundsen and Shackleton and Byrd, who were in the early 1900s trying to be the first human ever to get to the South Pole. And their story, if you, I don't know if you've read their stories, but it's, especially it's Sha grueling. Shackleton's stuff. Yeah. It was just incredible. So, you know, so, you know, I'm 16 years old. I'm going to leave high school. I'm going to go on a 25,000 mile trip. I'm going to go to Antarctica and I'm going to get to the edge of the continent. But for me, I had this dream, right? I had this dream to get to the South Pole. So um, I remember talking to my father and, um, you know, telling him that, you know, I, I, I'm getting to the continent, which is enough of a miracle for a 16 year old anyway. But what I really wanted to do was get to the South Pole. So um, I'll never forget what he said to me. He looked at me and he said, David, you know, never let seemingly difficult things or even seemingly impossible things get in the way of you putting your whole heart into going after what you really want. You know what I mean? So I said, OK, I mean, you know, let what does that mean? He was a big thinker. And um, so anyway, to make a long story short, we put together the South Pole Project. We needed some kind of a plan that was juicy enough and fun enough and kind of crazy enough to get, you know, the Coast Guard and the Navy, um, you know, to risk my life <laughs> to get me to the South Pole. So um, the South Pole Project was I was going to take an American flag and fly it at the South Pole, sort of in honor and testament of what um, – you know, young people can do with a dream and a vision, right? You know, for, at 16, getting to the South Pole is a pretty big vision. So the Coast Guard was excited about it. We were going to promote the Sea Cadets and what they were doing. And we were going to um, make it bigger. We were going to present that flag to President Carter when I got back. He wasn't involved in the loop. That was just, you know, the vision. So um, everybody bought off on it. And, um, you know, I'll never forget the day. It was January 14th, 1977. I set foot on the South Pole. And, um, you know, two things happened in that moment. One, I realized how cold the South Pole is. <laughs> Because it's 60 below zero and the Coast Guard and their infinite wisdom gave me a light gardening jacket and some light gloves. So it was literally painful. I mean, it was 60 below zero and freezing. But the other thing I realized was um, 
if you can think it and if you have some heart and passion, you can make it happen. So um, that's how I got to the South Pole. Interesting as I, as I hear you recount the story, and it's the first time I've heard the, those stories. Yeah. Uh, I think about it wasn't just I have a dream. It's I have a dream, and then you back up, and you put together your plan to make the dream execute, or at least give you the best opportunity for the dream executing. So you're, you're, you're back. You've, you've done your trip to Antarctica. You've done your trip to Tahiti. You're now back stateside, and you're off to college, I presume at that point after Tahiti? No. Well, actually, the way it worked was I came back I came back from um, the trip and then went to college um, and spent... Uh, and the sailing thing happened, you know, in the middle of college. I was doing the sailing thing in the middle of college. And then I graduated college, moved to San Diego, and um, uh, was helping a guy start a computer store and just out of pure coincidence ran into a guy that had started Value Source a month before that. And he needed a programmer, and I was a programmer, and that's how we sort of got together. What was the computer store in those days? Well, it was interesting. The guy I was working with, uh, if he had a little more business savvy, he was the first Michael Dell. He was Michael Dell before Michael Dell existed. It was the first sub $1,000. It was the old XT computers, right? Mm -hmm. And um, the clone parts were just starting to come out, but there's nowhere you could buy them. You couldn't buy them in a store anywhere. He was selling them in a swap meet for a while, and he put together a store, and he was selling them like crazy because, you know, they were half the price of what you were buying for computer land and things like that. So, but he didn't, you know, he didn't have the you know, vision to, to Dellize it. But, mm -hmm. you know, um, he had an incredible vision and was selling a lot of computers and I was helping. I was sort of putting off getting another corporate job after just getting back. I, I had just gotten back from Tahiti actually at that point. And so you, you started Value Source as a programmer. Yeah. And, and you have a business partner. Yep. And the business partner was experienced in business or not? No, he was very experienced. And, and more than, I think, just the sort of experience. He had the, the passion and the the you know, ability in, in business, it's always up and down, you know, it, it's always, it gets to the point where it's scary when you're starting a business there, you know, there's not enough money. You can't, you know, you can't see how you're going to make it past the next week or the next month. And, you know, he's the one that really was the initial person that really showed me and taught me, you know, what it really takes to make that work. And how do you, you know, how do you keep your cool when payrolls due in two weeks and you don't have, have enough money and you have 12 people on your payroll. Um, so he just always had an incredible faith uh, you know, he's an incredible entrepreneur and went on to do some incredible things. And so, I mean, that was really the first person that sort of taught me, but he, you know, I, I very quickly shifted into, you know, sort of the operational management role and he, he, um, you know, sort of the, the valuation brains and the financial brains. You, as you look back at, at that experience and you got a new business, a new startup and cash flow problems, and just like everybody else that starts a small business, I presume, what was the turning point for the business, do you think? What was the one thing that caused it to shift into second gear for you? Part of it was I, I really realized that um, when we started, we had one publisher. We had one guy that was um, had a it was a catalog that we used to mail out. It was called um, it was called LBO. LBO magazine or something. And it was books and tapes on, on leveraged buyouts. So the guy had become incredibly successful doing leveraged buyouts in the eighties. And, um, you know, he was publishing books and tapes and we were the only software in there. And so, uh, so, you know, it was some decent cash flow. but, um, what I became really aware of is, you know, marketing was a very critical thing, the marketing and sales piece. And I was a programmer. I mean, I had a natural sort of affinity with people, but I knew nothing about marketing and sales. So I really devoted myself to learning marketing. Um, and then sales. And so I think that helped, you know, um, I remember, you know, studying direct mail 
you know, back in the 80s, you know, how do you write copy that sells? I actually still have, I'll show it to you later. It's the first book someone gave me. I, I, I can see his face. I don't remember his name. He gave me a book called Money Making Marketing by Jeffrey Lant, which was a step-by-step -step plan on how do you market your business and specifically how do you write copy that sells? How do you communicate in a persuasive manner in, in writing and whatever you're doing? So, um, you know, that was one that was one turning point, realizing that I had to shift from sort of the technical guy to the business guy and more specifically the marketing and sales guy. Mm -hmm. You know, thinking about your business. So, you know, you, you've turned the corner and you can see fruit from your marketing efforts. And so the company begins to grow. At what point in time did your business partner leave the business? We ended up selling it um, to John Wiley in 19... 1994, 1994, yeah. 1994. So, you know, we sort of grew it for 10 years. That was a huge turning point. I mean, we realized that, you know, we needed a partner. We needed some strategic alliance. You know, we were, t we were thinking about all sorts of different things. And we found a guy um, who actually lives in Denver now. He didn't then. That was a, um, he was a sort of a boutique investment banker kind of a guy. And, um, you know, he had this vision of what was possible. So we retained him to help us look for options to grow or sell. And Wiley Wiley showed up on the radar. So it was actually, it was an interesting fit. So we ended up selling to, to Wiley and that's how I ended up living in Colorado. I actually moved here six months before that living in Lake City because my mother-in-law had um, moved there as the president of the bank and we moved there after and I was sort of, um, you know, working on the business from there. But, you know, that was a, that was a big turning point, um, absolutely, selling it to Wiley and, and shifting gears. And I think, you know, sometimes it's hard to know, you know, to get to the next level, what do you do? You try and fund it internally. What does that look like? Strategically, you're going after new markets, new products. You know, how are you doing that? Where are you going to get any of the resources to figure all that out? So, um, you know, I still believe it was a it was a good move. It turns out that, you know, after being there for 10 years and running their software division, that um, it was really a better fit as a standalone company than as part of a book publisher. And, you know, as an example, um, I remember once we wanted to do something with distribution, put a flyer in the books or something like that. And I was having a conversation with, you know, I think it was one of the marketing managers at Wiley. And Wiley's a fabulous company. I, I think, you know, I have all the respect in the world for them. But, you know, they sort of let the reality of the situation known to me. You know, they've got a, they've got a, a, a warehouse that's shipping a million dollars a day of books. And I'm asking them to change the operations to do, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just, you know, I... I you, Unless you're sitting in the warehouse and seeing a million dollars a day of stuff, you don't understand the volume and the process and what they have, you know, the gigantic infrastructure they have to sell what? Books. What do we sell? We sell software. It was a, it was a different kind of a thing. So I think, um, you know, it really made sense to come back as a sort of a standalone company outside of the, the, the book infrastructure. When you bought the business back, so you'd been through the build, creation, maturity, sale of the business. Yeah. Then you worked at the company that bought it. Mm -hmm. Then you bought it back. It, take us to the thought process when when you you came home, told your bride, said, "Hun, <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm going to buy the business back, based on all of your your mileage between building and selling and working and buying it back." What changed when you bought it back? What do you think the key difference was when you bought it back? Well, I think um, the autonomy. You know, I think as a small business, you can um, create whatever you want. I mean, you can wake up in the morning and decide what you want to change, and you can change it. And when you're in a um, an organization that's large, it's a it's a much more challenging thing to do that. So number one, I had obviously ultimate freedom because I, I wasn't trying to do it in the context of running it as a division for another company. So I think that was probably the primary thing. We could do whatever we wanted to do. You know, the website, for example, you know, they had this um, 
huge content management system to develop their website. Which of course, when you do that, there's certain constraints, but you know they didn't necessarily fit what we were doing. So we could say, okay, well, what kind of a website does a software company need, and invent it and create it? What kind of, you know, that was one example of how we do that. You know, and I could then put flyers in the in the products when we shipped them out because we could do whatever we wanted to do. So some of the stuff seems simple, but I think you know, in a business, there's some level of freedom that you need to make things work in the environment that you're in. And I think the big challenge was, you know, um, being a part of a very large company. I think they were at 500 million by the time we left. Um, you know, it just creates, and you know, it's, it's a balance between opportunities and challenges. Certainly, you know, we didn't have to worry, you know, that whole payroll thing about, you know, if, if sales are soft one month, you know, when you're part of a big company, you don't have to worry about payroll. So it's, it's definitely a balance. But I, I can remember, you know, there's times in a business where, you know, there's so much change going on. It, the uncertainty is, um, it's stressful and fearful. You know, you just, you know, you don't, you don't know. What does that transition look like? You know. In, as, so you've been through the transition and you're back to running the business. And, you know, you, you built it, sold it, and bought it. And your software nowadays is used to evaluate companies that are either going to be bought or sold, and you're segueing into software that helps folks realize value and how to build their company to a particular point. So it seems like all of your journey up until most recently is basically supporting the software that you build. Yeah. yeah. So, so you've actually done what you're talking to these folks about doing and writing the software for. So yeah. this is not abstract for you. No, not at all. Um, although, you know, I have to say our primary market are CPAs that are doing this, um, we call it, you know, it's for a litigation support sort of perspective. There's divorces, there's stock options, there's, um, um, you know, someone passes away. So, you know, that is a little different than, than my journey, which is more, you know, business growth, buy, sell, mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, people, most of our clients are not using it to buy and sell businesses, although we're moving into that. I mean, we've got a program and I realized about five years ago, I was a member of a couple of business groups. And um, CXO in Denver and Ty Rockies um, in, in Denver in the Innovation Pavilion. And people, when they found out as a valuation guy, I'd always get these questions, you know. Um, I remember talking to a woman and she was saying, and she had substantial funding for a startup. And what was the story? I think they were issuing stock options. And she just couldn't bear to write the big check for the valuation for stock ops. And she was asking me, you know, what are my options? How does this work? Or people would talk to me about, I've got a business and I need to sell it or I need an investor and I can't afford, you know, a formal valuation. What do I do? So what became clear is business people, um, there were certain points along the journey of business where the concept of business value became really important and they really didn't have many options. They could either write a big check and get a formal valuation or, um, there weren't really many options because, you know, it's kind of a hard thing to go to your CPA and say, you know, let's have a ca casual conversation about what my business is worth. And they'll say, well, you know, the, and the truth is a formal valuation is a very sophisticated process. There's a lot of steps to it. It takes, you know, a lot of time and energy and they, they earn their money. They work really hard. They, you know, the level of experience they have, the level of training they have is huge. But, you know, it, it makes it a challenge for a business owner because having that conversation with a CPA about you know, well, what's my business worth becomes something where you need to make an investment to, to really answer that in a robust way. So, you know, I realized there was a midpoint um, to that question. In other words, a formal valuation is, um, 
you know, absolutely required in many circumstances, but most business owners, much of the time, are not going to take that journey, you know? And so what do you, so what do they do? So that was the question. I, you know, all these people would come to me and say, you know, what's my business worth? How do I figure this out? What does it look like? And what I came to realize is many of them didn't need the, the rigor of a formal valuation. They needed a ballpark. You know, they needed something that would that put them close because they had no idea. So um, by that point, we had um, bought a small company that um, had the largest database of business sales comparables in the country. And um, that data is really hard to get. It's sort of like an MLS for businesses. So you can see what other businesses in your industry sell for. So I thought, wow, we should really... Um, you know, we should really develop a program that helps business owners very quickly. And it's not a formal valuation process at all. It's, it's more of a, you know, it's sort of a rule of thumb. It's, it's, you know, what are the forces driving business prices? And once again, since it's not a formal valuation, it's a ballpark. But with the comparables sort of thrown in there into the mix, a business owner can get a sense, wow, you know, if I've got a you know, manufacturing company, I've got a restaurant, I've got a service company or whatever, this is what they tend to sell for. And this is where I'm sort of in the ballpark. And it, it became something that, um, you know, people really, really appreciated, you know, um, you know, we've had so many phone calls from small business owners, you know, a hair salon, you know, someone is trying to sell a hair salon, you know, what is it worth? And, you know, maybe they, they don't want to um, go through the process of having a broker and, and brokers are a fabulous way to go. But some people decide they don't want to go through, a, you know, a business broker. They just want to get a sense of what it's worth or they're bringing in a partner, you know, um, what, and he wants to buy in. What's, what's this worth? Interesting. And as, as I think about uh, as, as a business owner, you, you've got your strategic plan. You're working in the business. Uh, you work on the business on Saturday morning if you've got some time, if you're not working in the business. And you have your plans and you're trying to execute your plans and you're skating in a particular direction. And I think the challenge, at least from talking for a number of business people, is am I skating in the right direction? What are the metrics on other companies like mine that they've sold for? You know, and what were the key determinants that drove the pricing of businesses like mine? And am I focusing on the right segments that create value in my business? And you and I spoke about that some uh, prior to, uh, to this podcast about value creation in a business and the tool that you're developing for, for working on value creation in a business. Can you dig into that a little bit? Sure. Um, well, it's a really interesting question. And I think um, so many business owners don't understand that. And I know even as a valuation person, it was a hard thing to understand because I think there's levels of that. Um, most business people focus on the P&L because that's what keep the lights on. So, you know, you're looking at, you know, revenue, you're looking at margins, you're looking at net and, you know, can, can you survive? I mean, every business owner has got that number in his head and he stops sleeping when you start getting close to that. We've all been in that position. So that's, you know, that's one primary focus. And I think small business owners focus on the P&L. Now, you'll notice, you know, when you listen to either uh, public companies or very large companies, they're not focused on the P&L. They're focused on value. Um with public companies, it's super simple. They wake up every morning and the stock price is staring them in the face. So that's a really easy thing to see. With businesses, what you see is net, right? You're seeing the P&L. You know, you're seeing the checkbook. That's what you see. But checkbook and bank balance and P&L does not equal value. And most business owners completely don't get that. So, you know, a business, you know, if you have a business with the exact same net and the exact same revenue, it, it, it you know, it, those do not sell for the same thing. If you look at data, 
um, like I said, we have a database of those comparables. So let's take a look at restaurants in Colorado and look at restaurants that are thrown off $400,000 a year. Take 50 of them. You know, the range in value, and in other words, the range that they sold for, usually in those smaller businesses, about 300%. As you get bigger, that range gets larger. So what does that mean? Businesses that have the same revenue and the same cash flow are selling for wildly different things. The question is why? What is driving that? What does that mean? Most business owners don't even understand that's happening. You know, they think a business that's, you know, got some revenue is going to sell for pretty much what a business of the same revenue is going to sell for. That is absolutely not the case. So um, we've come out with some software that helps people understand, um, you know, an estimate of what the business is worth. And it gives some indicators to um, why. And we just partnered with a company called Core Value, which helps dig into that exact thing. In other words, what are the things that are driving value? You know, a super simple example is if all of your revenue is concentrated in a very few clients, it's highly risky. So, you know, someone buying that is going to realize that and go, wow, if, you know, 60% of your business is focused on one client, if they leave, the business is in serious trouble. So, you know, business valuation is super simple in, in sort of the upper level theory. Um, our software produces a, you know, a couple hundred page report that sort of digs into the, the details and subtleties of that. But business value is really simple. Actually, the value of anything is pretty simple. It's cash flow divided by risk. You know, that's what the entire investment world is driven on. And businesses are driven on the same thing. Business owners totally get cash flow because it keeps the lights on. They completely don't get risk. So, you know, the, the concentrated customer thing is one piece. And core value breaks it into 18 different value drivers, 18 things that drive the value of a business. And what business owners tend to focus on is the P&L. They don't focus on the things that are driving value. And, you know, they get too busy to work on the business. They're working in the business. They're, they're putting out all the fires that are happening every day. And they don't realize that, wow, they better diversify that customer base. Wow, if they're a restaurant, you better have a long-term lease. Wow, if I'm, if I'm a business owner and I'm so involved in sales that if I leave, sales are going to tank. You know, all of those kind of things, you know, having um, a solid process for financial statements, having, you know, a good HR process, having good legal coverage, having, you know, a market that's growing, having penetration, having brand. I mean, there's so many things in there and we tend to focus on some very specific things. Like, for example, in our business, you know, I started as a programmer. I wasn't a business guy, but, um, you know, I never thought about margins in the business. We resell a lot of databases. So, you know, margins are an important thing. I never really thought about it. But strategically, it's really important. And, you know, for example, in core value, one of the questions is, do you have a written plan to improve your margins over time? Right. And, it's, you know, I, I, when I when I first saw that, it sort of hit me in a two by four because that one meant a lot to me. But there's a lot of those kind of questions about what is your plan? You talk about your strategies and overall business. The truth is, when you break that down, there's, a, you know, a couple of dozen places where you can have that strategy. And we tend to focus on one or two and ignore the rest until a fire happens. I, I think about what, what you just said, and so for for the business owner, if you went through the process and you go, you know, I've got one and two, but I'm missing three through fifteen, and there's actionable, identifiable metrics to take and start putting aside. And so, let's say as a business, I'm so busy in the business, I got no time for on the business. But if there's the top one, two, or three, I can get a little piece of that on Sunday. I can get a little piece of that on Friday morning and start my policies and procedures. I can get my HR squared away. I can get my marketing plan squared away. Yeah. I can have my written policies and procedures done. And I think they can start what, – what strikes me for the business owner, rather than arriving at his retirement date and go, I'm going to hang up at 65 or 62, and you just arrive at the date and then you say, I'm going to sell it. And a horrible idea. 
you know, to go into that point and then try to figure it out. I think what you're talking about is a strategic overlook with key determiner, key points to be able to take into, I'm going to skate toward this thing on purpose, you know, and I can take and evaluate what other people are doing and I can compare myself against those other folks. I, I think, you know, for an off the shelf online mentor that unpick on you, but you can go and look at it. I think this is a great resource to take and get that kind of insight to your business. Oh, absolutely. And the other thing too, you know, I hear so many people talk about um, business value. They talk about exit planning. They talk about the number, you know, it's a dartboard, right? What's the number, you know, what do you need it to be? But I think what we, what we miss is, um, really our experience and the quality of life as we're going through this process, because a business, a business that is, has not really maximized its value has not maximized the experience for the owner. And what I mean by that is that those businesses will be more stressful. They'll be more hectic. Um, and the business owner takes that on directly. So in other words, how many business owners do you know that the business has consumed a good chunk of their lives? You know, right? That is a very common kind of a thing. It's the Michael Gerber e-myth, you know, metaphor, and it's absolutely true. So what we're really talking about here, it, it, it's more than the business. It's really designing your life so that the business supports your vision and your life rather than the other way around. And that is huge. And people don't talk about that so much, but it's like, you know, who are you? What do you want to do in the world? Do you really want to have, you know, your entire psychological bandwidth sucked up by this business and you get home and you're completely exhausted. So even though you're not maybe working 80 hours a week, you don't have much bandwidth left. But if you really were going to sit down and design your life and say, you know, who am I? What do I want to do in the world? And how does this business fit into that? That's a completely different paradigm, a completely different picture. And if you're, unless you're focused on operational effectiveness, you can never make that piece connect. You just can't do it. So I think so many business owners um, spend so much of their heart and soul in a business over years and decades. And it's not just at the end of the day that the, the dartboard isn't the right number, but it's the quality of their life over that period of time that they've really not thought about nearly enough. And to me, you know, as I sort of, you know, I'm 50, what am I, 57 now, I've got four grandkids. To me, that whole thinking is more important. I wish that thinking was more important earlier. It used to be, it didn't matter how much, you know, time and energy and bandwidth it took, because that's just what I was sort of doing. But I think that's a huge, huge mistake. And valuation and strategic thinking, if you put yourself in the picture, can really help you identify some priorities in your life and really help give you the emotional leverage to say, I will spend that time to work on these things because it's important. It means something to me, you know, and that's the piece that I don't hear too many people talking about. You know, as I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, I got carried away listening. And I, if folks are listening to the podcast and they're trying to figure out how to get a hold of you or how to get a hold of this software, what's the best way for them to find you on social media or on your website? Well, our website, it's um, www.valuesource.com. There's no E in value, so it's V-A-L-U-source.com. And my, you know, our phone number is on there, so they can email me too at um, define, D-F-E-I-N, at valuesource.com. Once again, no E, it's V-A-L-U-source.com. You know, as, as, as you're talking, and we talked a little bit before, um, you're passionate about your business, and you were talking about uh, designing your life. You've had a couple of other things that in your life that you're passionate about, and one has to do with uh, Christmas trees, <laughs> and the other has to do with uh, the seven habits. Yeah. You want to dive into that just a little bit? Sure. Um, the Christmas tree thing was a um, happy accident. Um, my wife and I gave away a Christmas tree in uh, um, 2010, I guess, and we put a one-line ad on Craigslist that simply said, uh, a free Christmas tree to a family with children. 
and we got 20 responses from the Craigslist ad in an hour. I had my phone and the, the emails just kept clicking and clicking and clicking. But what was amazing wasn't just the number of emails. It was the stories behind the emails. It was single moms. It was um, we had some vets coming back from Afghanistan that were struggling, you know, on many levels. We had a boy's home. We had people that had health issues. And number one, we had no idea um, that so many people needed Christmas trees. It never crossed our mind. And we just never connected the dots with people that were struggling and not being able to get a Christmas tree, and especially families with young children. Um, you know, when you think about it, it is just painful for a family with young children not to be able to provide a Christmas for their children in this culture. So uh, my wife had 20 bucks from her principal to do something good with. And she said, uh, we gave away our first Christmas tree to a couple that had a baby that was going to have her first Christmas. And she, my wife said, let's take that 20 bucks, pitch in the rest and buy the boys home a tree. There was a boys home um, within a couple miles of our house, which we had no idea even existed. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and these kids had been through the system, the juvenile court system, and they were ordered to live in this boys home outside of their families. And I thought, well, that's interesting. These are kids that have been through the system have kind of had a rough time. You know, are they really going to even care about a Christmas tree? Because the woman that ran the boys home reached out to us. So we went and, and bought a Christmas tree and, and drove it over there and helped them set it up. And these kids were touched, deeply touched by two things. One, the symbol of a Christmas tree because it meant so much in their lives. And two, that someone cared enough to bring a Christmas tree for them. And we were touched. We were like, wow, this is really amazing. So we were having dinner with some friends and we half jokingly said, wouldn't it be cool? Because we got 20 requests. We gave one away. We bought one. So now we had 18 left. So we said, wouldn't it be awesome if we could get those 18, you know, a tree. So our friend said, well, we'll pitch in some money. So we bought, I don't know, two or three more. And then the Gazette ran a story about what we were doing. And they had a picture of the boys home tree. And, um, it was amazing that first year we gave away 300 Christmas trees in like 14 days. It was unbelievable. It was absolutely unbelievable. A logistical nightmare. Right? Right? <laughs> so so we started in our garage, you know, when we were doing this thing, little piecemeal. And then, you know, I remember driving home from Denver. I was at a meeting. I was probably at a Thai Rockies meeting or something in Denver when the article hit. And the phone started ringing and the email started. I mean, it was just like incredible, right? So we had to scale up in a minute. So we had to find a, a group of elves to make this thing happen. And, and we did. And um, we orchestrated the whole thing. And I had um, doctors, I had an anesthesiologist woman, I'll never forget her, who was driving seven hours a day in her car from, from you know, out east up to Monument, down to Fountain to pick up trees, deliver trees. And uh, so it was sort of a happy, happy miracle. And we've been doing it every year. Um, since and it grows every year, and now we have elves in Denver, in um, in Reno, and we deliver trees coast to coast. That's awesome. Yeah, it's amazing. It's a good story. Yeah, it's a great story. And then your Seven Habits Initiative, working with the veterans. Yeah, well, that's an interesting thing. Um, I was introduced to the Seven Habits on the inside. Um, many people are familiar with Stephen Covey and his his book. It's a great book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and and you know it's it's. Um, been very successful. I think it was the number one or number two best-selling business book for many, many years. It may still be. Um, but the Colorado Prison Program has a, a, an inmate version of that. And I was invited down there about eight years ago. And I'd done some personal development work. I were, you know, I, I did Tony Robbins' seminar in the early 80s. I staffed his seminars. I worked uh, for LifeSpring. I actually took a sabbatical for a year um, at ValueSource to, to work on a, a LifeSpring, which is a personal growth, personal development program. So I had a sense of those kind of things. You know, people trying to change. What does that mean? And um, um, when I walked in there, it was really clear to me they had something very special going on. I mean, when you imagine inmates in a prison and you think about what they've been through in their lives, the, dis- the poor decisions that they've made to get there, their experience there, and what 
they would be like in a prison. And then you meet these guys that have really changed their attitude and more than their attitudes, they've changed their hearts and really become men that are driven by character, driven by values, driven by a, a need to serve in Covey terms, leave a legacy. Um, and you know, a number of these guys I met, um, they, their last breath will be in that prison. And um, their focus is not one of resentment, anger, and frustration, but the opposite. It's, you know, one of service, one of gratitude, one of gratefulness. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's a pro it, it, it's confusing to walk into a prison and see that. So, um, you know, I, I sort of volunteered a little bit and um, got certified to teach and ended up teaching um, at a couple of juvenile prisons, Seven Habits. And um, through that, ended up realizing teaching juveniles is, is challenging. Um, trying to get their attention is more than challenging. So um, we ended up creating a um, life skills program um, through theater where we have youth figure out how to look at their life, look at their past, look at their decisions, look at their future by putting on a play of their life. And um, that's become a very interesting thing. And I've been working on a program to, it's sort of a seven habits on the inside outreach program to help coordinate some, um, some programs for uh, wounded vets. I, I met C.W. Connor a number of years ago. Actually, this is kind of a crazy story. The first year of the Christmas tree project, we had a guy that called us that was a vet and um, he needed a Christmas tree for his family. And I, I'll never forget this. I still remember it, it was in 2010. He showed up in a car with purple plate tags. And I, rem I, I still remember him watching him get out of the car. He was hurt, he was wounded, he was very wounded. And it was hard for him to get out of the car. Physically, it was very hard. It was hard for him to walk over to me to talk to me. You know, you read in the, you read in the newspaper about the war and vets, but until you're sitting in front of one that's really hurt, you don't get it. And, and you know, it just, it was a powerful image to me. And we hooked him up with a Christmas tree and made sure his family was set for the year, but I never forgot him. And a few months later, I met a guy that was volunteering at LifeQuest and he was telling me about LifeQuest was working with wounded vets to help them, you know, rehabilitate themselves and become physically fit and do extreme sporting goods and I, or sporting events. And um, I remember that vet and I said, I want to meet the man that started LifeQuest and that man was C.W. Connor. So I was introduced and, um, you know, I'd been doing some stuff with the seven habits and he, he'd been, he's been doing incredible work with vets. And I thought there was a nice, there was a mix there. You know, when I first walked into the prison, I thought there's a way to, um, use this, you know, in other ways than just in the prison. I mean, it's transformed inmates lives. It's transformed the prison culture, which is an amazing thing. When you talk about organizational culture for an organization, like a prison to transform into a very positive, um, focused organization is a challenging thing. So uh, CW and I worked together and um, he had some, uh, a lot of connections in the military community and we started working on putting together, you know, a program for, for wounded vets. And um, so that's still in process. So I, I get a lot of, um, I get a lot of joy and reward from, you know, working in and around these guys that have changed their lives and it with, with the staff that have supported them and supported changing their culture and guys that work with wounded vets. Um, you know, it's funny, the wars are off the front page of the paper, but um, the vets that have come home are still here and still need more help than most of us realize. Yeah, it's, you know, most of my really close friends are vets. Yeah. And so get that part. You know, in, in thinking about the things that we've talked today, and I think folks may may think as, as they're listening, go, well, this has been a pretty straightforward uh, thing for you. But I suspect along the way that there were some very challenging times as an entrepreneur. What were some of the challenges? What was the most challenging moment you think you had as an entrepreneur? 
I mean, there's a lot of challenging moments. I think the, the most emotionally difficult ones to deal with is when you can't see um, enough money coming in to keep the thing rolling. You know, whether it's a payroll next month or whether, you know, we're, you know, making a transition like, you know, buying it back from Wiley and, you know, um, you know, we're starting from ground zero, really, right? It's like, mm -hmm. you know, what does that look like? So I think, um, you know, those times, like when we lost a big client, we had a big client that, you know, we had for years and we lost them four years ago and it was a significant, you know, it was a significant impact to us. So I think for me, those are the emotionally most challenging because they bring up fear. I'll never forget an article it was in Inc. Magazine. It was like, oh my goodness, it must have been 25 years ago. And uh, and I still remember it. And it was an article by a guy that was, I think he was, um, he was a special forces guy in the military and he had done combat. He'd been in combat. And he said in combat, you know, there's adrenaline, there's fear. I mean, there's all those really powerful emotions and some of them are downright scary, but they're, they're you know, intense for um, short periods of time and you sort of know when you're in them and when you're out of them. And he said, and he was a business person then, he said, in business, the fear never leaves. He's always worried about, you know, something happening or, you know, um, you know whether it's money or personal, you know, human resource or whatever, there's always challenges, right? Mm -hmm. So for him, his bottom line was business was scarier than war. And I never, you know, it, to me, I would never imagine anyone would say that. But I think, you know, there's times when, you know, you think, you know, you've spent years building something and you, you, in your mind, you face losing everything, everything falling apart. And, you know, as it grows and you have bigger overhead and bigger responsibilities and bigger payroll and that kind of stuff. And we're a small business, so it's not, you know, a huge scale. But still, you know, when you've got a dozen people on payroll, it's a decent chunk. It's so, them and their family. You, and yeah. I heard it referred to. As uh, you know, you have the athletes that are in the sports arena for a number of years, and then you have the corporate athlete that could be in the field for 40 years, you know, and it's, it's yeah. a different mindset, you know, in, in thinking about what's the, the single most riveting or best piece of advice you think you ever got along your way? Um, the one that comes to mind, um, I was a programmer when we, we started this thing, and I realized that um, I really didn't have um, business experience or management experience or marketing experience. And there was a guy that used to be the CFO of Levi Strauss in Schlumberger in Europe. I mean, he was a heavyweight business guy. And he sort of quit and went off and sort of found himself, you know, um, after a few years. And he came back and he wanted to give back to small business people. And um, I still remember this advice. And he used to ask me questions about the business, you know, um, numbers, you know, what, what is this turnover or that, or how much you're selling, or, you know, what's your customer retention rate or what, whatever, you know, what's your AR. And, you know, I'd jump on the computer and 15 minutes later, I'd have a number and he would say, you know, you have to know the heartbeat of your business. And if you don't know the heartbeat of your business, like intuitively, like every day, if someone calls you at three in the morning and says, what is this piece of your heartbeat? And you don't know it, you're flying blind. You really have no idea what you're doing. And I've always sort of taken that to heart. So from a purely business sort of perspective, I would say, you know, you have to understand the heartbeat and it's, it's not simple, but you know, there is a heartbeat and when, when you're tuned into it, it makes life easier. You know, when things are going wrong, you know, when things are going right, you know how to adjust that and tweak it. So I would say, you know, know the heartbeat is a piece of advice that I got that really has stuck. In thinking about all the things that you've done in your life, there must be one or two personal habits that you have that you feel have contributed to your sense of adventure and your ability to succeed. What do you think those might be one or two personal habits? I would say some of the most important ones are um, follow your own dreams and not just the intellectual ones, the ones you're really excited about and um, say yes, even when you're scared. Um, and I tend to do that, 
you know, the South Pole thing was, you know, kind of a scary thing. Um, going to the going to the South Pacific, and I still remember that. I mean, it was it was scary to think about getting on a thirty four foot boat and sailing, you know, across thousands of miles of ocean. You know, when I actually really got down to it. So it's it's you know, I think we tend to once again, I think it's it's figure out who you really are, what you really want, get excited about it, and say yes even when it's scary, and keep going even when it's hard. Um, you know, if you can do those things, I think you know you can create an adventurous and beautiful life. And, that, and that, I would say that too. I mean, I think we're here to create an adventurous and beautiful life. We're here to do much more than survive. And I think it's so easy to get locked into this, you know, sort of survival mode, the survival mentality where we're really not having a lot of fun. We're really not being adventurous. We're really not exploring ourselves or the world or what's possible. And we're in this narrow track and we just, you know, get up every morning and repeat. You know? <laughs> the grind. The grind, right. The grind. So the grind. yeah, anything to get out of the grind, you know. You know, I, I guess in, in kind of coming to a close here, in your business, we talked a little bit before, and said, you know, what's got you most fired up about the business? We talked a little bit about a marketing initiative that you were putting in mm -hmm. place, and we also talked about um, some software that I think we touched on earlier a little bit that you're trying to bring out to help the businessman. Maybe we should touch on those a little bit before we close. Sure. There's, um, there's two things that, uh, you know, I'm really passionate about. One is our online business valuation program that helps small business owners figures out what their what their business is worth in 60 minutes. Um, and the other one is the partnership that we just started with with core value. And I think it's, you know, once again, it's really helping business owners understand how um, how their business works, how how they can um, make it much more effective. And once again, to me, it goes back to the personal thing. The business owner isn't just some cog in a wheel. He's a human being with a vision and a dream. And if we can help him um, really realize more of his dream through making his businesses more effective. That's powerful. Chuck Richards has a, um, you know, his vision is to touch a, business, a million business owners. He's the CEO of Core Value. And his idea is to, you know, most businesses are operating, you know, it's an eight cylinder car operating on four cylinders maybe, right? So, you know, what does that really mean for the business, the owner, the employees? And if you start scaling that and you look at a community like Colorado Springs, if you have more businesses that are more effective, what does that mean for the employment in this in this city and the resilience of this city? And then so if you do that to Colorado and you do that to the nation, his vision is pretty grand. It's really raising the level of business in the country to get a stronger country. And that to me is a really exciting thing. And to me, what that means is, you know, there's more people employed, there's more people, there's less stress. If businesses are working, you know, better, um, they're not so subject to the ups and downs that we all sort of face. So, you know, to me, that's an exciting vision to help the country, you know, shift. And, and it's interesting because there really isn't a national initiative to do that. I mean, we're all sort of left on our own to figure it out. And the truth is, there's a lot to know. It's like no one would think about, you know, going in to do an operation and not being a doctor and having, you know, four years of medical school and a residency and a surg surgical residency, right? Because there's a lot to know. You know, you can screw up and people can die. But, you know, as a business people, we, we jump into a business. We don't know anything. You know, I mean, we, many of us have never had any classes. We pick it up on our own. We're so busy you know, trying to figure out whatever we're doing that we don't have the time or energy to learn that. So I think there's a huge opportunity to help people because it's, it's just like being a doctor or a surgeon. You know, these things that drive a business are not a mystery. People have done them before, but we really just haven't taken the time or energy to, um, to really master them. I mean, certainly we're familiar with all of them, but there's subtlety in each one of them and there's excellence in each one of those. And there's best practice in each one of those. And, you know, those kind of things make our lives easier. They make our employees' lives easier. Um, they make life a little more fun, a little more adventurous. And when you scale it up, it, it makes a country that is robust and strong. 
Well, David, I tell you, I really appreciate you sharing the wisdom <laughs> and your passion for the business and, and your effort to help the business people out in the country. Because I'm, I'm a firm believer, like you, that uh, maybe you can't change everything, but you can change what you do. And yeah. it starts that way. Absolutely. So thanks again for being on the podcast. Oh, it's been a pleasure. It's been great. You bet. Thanks very much.